This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, June 5th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court has opted not to hear a case that might have helped prevent certain quasi-government entities from exercising heavy regulation over their private sector competitors. If that sounds like a conflict of interest to you, then you agree with Cato's Will Yateman. We spoke Monday. Um, The Supreme Court, by not taking up this case, effectively allows uh, for this precedent whereby Congress can authorize self-interested regulators, can can authorize for-profit corporations to regulate their competitors. In this specific instance, it's Amtrak regulating freight rail, which actually owns the track that Amtrak is regulating um, jointly with the Department of Transportation. But it's a big deal. Um, the you know Amtrak is uh, by statute uh, for profit. Its its board of directors and its officers have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize their profits. Indeed, their their officers get paid more. I mean, they've got uh, contingency payments, performance payments. Um, so now they've got in essence a veto power in negotiating regulations for their competitors with the federal government, with the Department of Transportation. This is the first time that's ever occurred. Um, it was a due process challenge that was denied at the, by the D.C. Circuit Court and uh, subsequently the Supreme Court refused to take up the case. But um, you know, there's 6,000 by one count of these government corporations that already enjoy all sorts of other benefits um, due to state patronage. Now the door is open for them to enjoy the benefit of writing the rules of their competitors. So again, that's a big deal. What does this mean for other companies? Now, Amtrak, like the Postal Service, uh, has some weird public responsibilities that we're – it's sort of hard to define for or hard to understand for most people. Uh, but uh, to what – how does this open the door, I suppose, for other companies uh, to find themselves regulated by these – I want to say quasi-public entities like Amtrak. Uh, quasi-public, I think, is a good term because it, it officially, for or let me put it this way, for purposes of separation of powers analysis at the Supreme Court level, they're considered a government entity. But by statute, they're a for-profit corporation. So quasi-governmental, I think, is, is an apt phrase. I'd note uh, it doesn't open the door for other companies. It opens the door for the Congress and state legislatures and, and municipal legislatures to accord these government-owned corporations this power, this power to have a 50% say in the rules for their competitors. Um, as it pertains to the railway industry in particular, so that which is on the table now, I mean, in the future, now the door is open for any legislature to, to accord you know, a, a corporation it creates <laughs> this power over its competitors. So that's a big deal. Uh, that no, no one's tapped into that power yet, but the door is now open as of today. In the railroad industry, I mean, this is uh, um, that's another big ramification here. We uh, rail rail is incredibly important for logistics in this country. Logistics, of course, is essential to um, our economy. Now we've got this bizarre situation whereby this again this core logistical means um, for the transport of goods and services is being regulated by a for-profit corporation um, that doesn't own the track. I mean, the entities it is regulating actually owns the track. Um, It is doing so in its own self-interest and it can use state power to bind its competitors. 
that is uh, 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 on paper a grossly inefficient regulatory regime that one I mean, you know, at issue here, these regulations pertain to track rights. That's a, a scarce commodity and indeed the paramount commodity um, for the rail industry. So it was down the road, potentially 6,000 government corporations could uh, accrue this right. But as of today, the clear and present danger is that uh, the rail industry, which is an important one, now has this super bizarre regulatory regime whereby Amtrak um, gets to create the rules for its competitors that own the track for which these rules apply. Let me ask you this. I know courts, when they opt not to hear a case, often don't provide much in the way of reasoning. Uh, what was the reasoning in the uh, D.C. Circuit uh, decision that uh, has been left standing that is in particular so bothersome? The D.C. Circuit actually uh, purported to remedy this concern, that of the self-interested regulator. The problem is their, their remedy does nothing to mitigate Amtrak's power. So specifically, um, before the D.C. Circuit's decision came down in 2018, when Amtrak and the Department of Transportation, which have this 50-50 right to regulate, they've got to produce joint regulations. Um, when they disagreed, after 180 days, any party could petition um, could, could, in essence, initiate a process by which an arbit or arbitration could issue a binding ruling favoring either Amtrak or the federal government. So the D.C. Circuit, um, when faced with this claim that, hey, we've got a big issue here, we've got a self-interested regulator, said, hey, we'll just, we're going to cut off this arbitration component and thereby um, cure the constitutional defect. They didn't really lend any explanation for why this would cure the underlying defect. I mean, again, the, the problem, just because you take away the arbitration component, well, these two entities, Amtrak and the federal government, still have a statutory responsibility to come up with a regulation after 180 days. If they don't, then they can be sued. Um, the upshot is Amtrak still has this, this veto. I mean, as it conducts these negotiations, its its partner – the federal government knows that at any point Amtrak can say, no, no, we don't agree to that. Uh, but we have veto power. Um, and you know, to be perfectly honest, without this arbitration component, we don't know what would happen down the road were uh, the, both these sides to stick to their guns. I mean, we're not, you know, I guess it would go back to the courts. That's sort of terra incognita. But, uh, but to your point, the DC circuit purported to take care of this constitutional problem, that of a self-interested regulator having power over its competitors by getting rid of this arbitration component. The issue is that that doesn't in any way take away Amtrak's fundamental core power, which is it's 50% of the operation. It would be one thing if the federal government was 51% and Amtrak had 49% control. Because um, then you know, the, the, the federal government unequivocally is calling the shots. Even if it was 50.1% for the federal government, the federal government would be calling the shots. But here, the entire time the federal government and Amtrak are negotiating these rules, Amtrak has 50% of the pie. Um, and wields that veto power. And that's huge. I mean, that that that, uh, that completely changes the game when it comes to negotiation stakes and negotiation power and respective positions and, and all of these things that go into the final rule, which again, regulates Amtrak's competitors. So the, the, whereas the Supreme Court in denying the petition to hear an appeal of the DC Circuit did not lend any reasoning, um, the DC Circuit's, uh, you know, again, the uh, supposedly solve this constitutional defect and then without really explaining 
um, why or how didn't address Amtrak's underlying power, which is, again, the core issue, the core due process concern. So um, that, uh, you know, DC's opinion um, leaves me wanting, leaves other uh, m- myself and others of like mind wanting. You know, from the state level uh, standpoint, we have these certificate of need laws. Uh, and those are they essentially exist in, in such a way that uh, they're pejoratively referred to as the competitor's veto. That is, are we selling uh, products or goods or providing certain services in a geographic area in a sufficient way? And if it's sufficient, then the certificate of need is denied. That is, the marketplace is working fine without all these excessive competitors coming in and trying to, you know, um, split the pie a little more. Uh, this seems like that kind of regime on steroids. Yes, I would. Uh, to your point, I mean, when you're talking about these uh, certificate of public convenience and necessity regimes, generally speaking, it's a quid pro quo whereby the government trades. Um, the authority to regulate pricing for a monopoly. So the company gets a monopoly, has to serve everybody, and the government gets the authority to say what your price is, company. And that's a big political power. I mean, you want that if you've, for your constituents. You want to be able to say, I kept electricity prices down. This is indeed that on steroids. This is uh, uh, the whole ball of wax, if you will. It's not just um, by virtue of state power, Amtrak getting the right to use railway that isn't its own, it's now Amtrak getting the right to regulate. Uh, to, I mean, you know, it's too far to say that it gets to dictate the price as would a state level regulate, regulator in these certificate of public necessity and convenience regimes. Um, but it's very much akin to that. I mean, uh, creating the rules uh, has an effect on the bottom line uh, as great, I would argue, as the price um, or as the price point. So it, yes, it is very much it is uh, akin to these state regimes, and they also operate at the federal level, um, but uh, very much so worse because now, um, you know, whereas the state regime is sort of this quid pro quo, this is just giving away the farm. How do sta- how are states going to be looking at this? If if this particular opinion is allowed to stand, what behaviors uh, uh, do you think are going to be most uh, welcomed for uh, state lawmakers and state regulators to be able to say, oh, wow, now I can do this other thing. I'm licking their chops. I mean, this is for the same reasons that we've got 6,000 state or, or you know, state-backed corporations in this country and of which the overwhelming preponderance is at the state level. Uh, these are all functions of uh, you scratch my, my 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 back, I scratch yours. Politics. I mean, that, that's how these things take place, and this just allows that to take place to a further level. I mean, so the sort of cronyism that went into these companies' creation to begin with, this is that on steroids. To to borrow your phraseology, I mean, and that is to say, hey, my politically connected buddy, you helped me get elected. I've already helped you um, with your state-backed corporation. You know, with with, my, with public patronage. Um, now I can give you the keys to the throne. Now I can give you the pen to write the rules for your competitors. So uh, it is uh, very much so an incentive for the worst sorts of politics. Will Yateman is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 